Well, I, um, I need to begin today by saying what a tremendous honor it is to be here and to have been called to this position. Uh, when I was a student at Houghton, I took a course where the professor said, and this is uh, not a professor you know, well, you, you may know him, but he doesn't go here. He's not here today. But he said to me, in your life, I challenge you to choose where you live, not by the job you get offered, but by the church community you want to belong to. What he meant by that was that we shouldn't let our career ambitions dictate where we live, and not the whims of any personnel committee, but we should find a church that we are convinced is doing the will of God in a good way, in a compelling way, but in a way that if I lent my gifts to it, it could do it even better. And then we should move there and let the chips with our careers fall where it may. Now, it's rather high-minded advice, and it struck me as very revolutionary at age 18. And uh, as soon as I left college and got out into the job market, it struck me as very naive advice. Uh, And certainly it struck me as undoable. But I have to say it is one of those pieces of advice that has stuck with me uh, long after most of the content of that course has dropped from my mind. Uh, To the point where it was a primary piece of advice swirling through my head when Jill and I were deciding about what to do uh, and whether we should come to Houghton. When I considered leaving the church where I was pastoring before, there were lots of things going on in my mind. But maybe chief among them was this keen sense of feeling alone in ministry. And uh, that's not something I lay at the feet of the congregation I was at. It's something I lay at my own feet. Uh, But I wanted to come to a place where I felt like my gifts could be welcomed and could be useful, but I didn't feel that kind of crushing burden from what if I screw up and the whole thing goes to pot. So when uh, Jill and I saw the mathematics uh, professor job, and incidentally, someone asked me after the first service who doesn't know me well if I'm the math professor. No, I'm not the math professor. But we saw a math professor job that Jill was interested in on the Houghton College website. And so we did our research on the college, but we also did our research on you. And we looked around the website, we poked around, we read your newsletter, and we definitely had this keen sense that this was a group of people who was doing the will of God and celebrating the presence of God in a clear and compelling way, and in a way that was so, how do I say it, it was right for this time and this place. Now, it may be an overstatement to say that we moved here just to be part of this church, but this was a huge consideration for us. It was a big part of the equation. And Jill and I are very honored just to be a part of this community. Uh, that being said, I'm amazed and especially honored that y'all have called me into leadership here. Uh, it's not something I imagined when I first came. And as I said, I was sort of looking forward to not being the leader to the point where when someone asked me to be a leader, I thought, oh, no, I don't know if I want to be a leader again. Um, but I've learned to trust leaders' advice. And so I listened to Pastor Wes and I listened to the voice of you. And I'm very grateful that you have called me to this position. Um, wow. All right. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to turn my attention now, and the rest of you can say amen. I want to turn my attention away from that, and I want to turn my attention to the, to the passage which, uh, which Jamie so ably read. Thank you. In the passage, Jesus is in a dinner party in a Pharisee's home. And we read that there is a certain woman in the city who heard that he was at the Pharisee's house, and she wanted to come and see Jesus. And so she came weeping and came bringing this alabaster jar of perfume. A precious jar. 
with precious contents. She knelt, she wept, she broke open the jar and her tears and the ointment mingled on his feet. She dried the feet with her hair. All in all, it was this intense scene, this intense love, this devotion born out of this woman's profound sense that somehow this man had made her, even her, right with God. A beautiful scene. But we need to say this and be quick to confess that it is weird. It's strange. When we preachers get together and talk, sometimes we get caught up in saying, what a beautiful thing it was and what a lovely act of devotion and how could those Pharisees just not get it? And to that, I just have to say, why would they get it? Would I get it? What was going on was strange. It was unusual. Here is a woman, a woman of ill repute, shall we say, and she breaks open this perfume, pours it all over Jesus' feet, and then dries the feet with her hair. It's a little weird. And if you think I'm overplaying this point, I mean, just come on up to the front. We'll take your shoes off. I'll break some perfume out over your feet. I'll dry them with my hair. That would be weird, wouldn't it? And I'm not even a woman of ill repute, but it's weird. Well... Whatever the case, it's a strange situation. The host of the party says, well, if this Jesus were really all he says he is, if he were really a prophet, if he were really given supernatural knowledge from God, he would have known who and what kind of a woman this is who's touching him. That she is a sinner. Now, the Pharisees' response is kind of interesting to me because uh, when we go through something strange in our lives, when we go through a weird thing like Jesus is going through, when we have a crisis situation, we often say something like, I wish so-and-so were here. I wish, I wish mom were here. I wish dad were here. They'd know what to do. They'd know what to do. Now, if the Pharisee is going to critique Jesus, you would expect him to go down this road uh, to critique him. You'd expect him to do so along these lines. If this guy were really a prophet, he'd know what to do. He would be doing something different. He would be saving this woman or he'd be preaching to her or something. I'm not sure what he'd do, but, but if he were a prophet, he'd know what to do. But that's not what the Pharisee says. He says, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And if I haven't said it well enough with inflection, those words should sting you. What kind of a woman this is. Jesus would know, in other words, if he were a prophet, how to categorize her. He would know that she fits in a category called prostitute. And we all know that we act a certain way towards people in categories like that, don't we? We give them the cold shoulder, we ignore them, we preach at them. Sometimes we get sanctimonious and we do mission trips or tolerate them. But whatever we do, we don't allow them to get away without us communicating to them our displeasure for their chosen vocation. Whether by icy stare or active word. If this guy were a prophet, he would know that she is of a category of which we do not approve. The Pharisee's response points out to me anyway, kind of a fundamental human reality. When we meet someone new, especially if we're in an unusual or crisis situation, we tend to make quick intuitive judgments about who they are and then act accordingly. We try to quickly categorize a person and determine whether they fit in a category that we can trust 
so we listen to what they have to say, or whether they fit into a category that we do not trust, and so we do not listen to what they have to say. The Pharisees' main critique of Jesus is that he fails in this task. He puts her in the wrong box. He does not categorize her properly. His embrace of the woman's actions reveals that he has put her in a trustworthy category when clearly she should be in the not trustworthy category. Now, as I say, I believe this is a fundamental human reality. And if I were going to prove this this morning, all I would have to do is to mention one name. Rush Limbaugh. Probably one word would suffice, just Rush, right? If Rush is his first name, Limbaugh is probably the last name. I don't know anyone else named Rush, but anyway, maybe you do. Now, suppose I were to tell you that I listened to Rush Limbaugh and agree with some of the things he has to say. Note, I am not telling you that I listen to Rush Limbaugh or that I agree with the things he say, but I'm also not telling you that I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. I say, what if I told you I did? Odds are you would have one of four responses. One, this might not be surprising news to you. You might say, huh, I'm not surprised Mike listens to Rush Limbaugh. I already like Rush Limbaugh and I already like Mike. It's no surprise, right? Or number two, you might say, yeah, it's no surprise Mike listens to Rush Limbaugh. I don't like Rush, and I don't like you, Mike. I'm suspicious every time Rush Limbaugh opens his mouth that I'm not going to like it, and I'm suspicious every time you, Mike, open your mouth that I'm not going to like it either. Three, you may say, huh, I'm kind of surprised Mike listens to Rush Limbaugh. I, I guess he's not so bad after all. right, the last time I listened to Mike preach, he totally sounded like a Democrat. I didn't like it. But now that I know he listens to Rush Limbaugh, I'll have to give him a second listen. Maybe he's got something worthwhile to say. Four, you might say, huh, I'm surprised Mike listens to Rush. I always liked Mike. I always thought he had some worthwhile things to say, but now that I hear he listens to Rush, I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I need to be more careful about him in the future and take what he says with a grain of salt. Those are the four likely options if I told you that I listened to Rush Limbaugh. Now, I could have done this same exercise with Keith Olbermann or Al Franken, and the same thing would happen. My choice of who I listen to shapes your perspective of me. It makes me seem either more or less trustworthy to you. In essence, if I tell you who I listen to, it invites you to put me in a box. And the people in one box you listen to, and the people in the other box you don't. And that's why I don't tell you who I listen to. (laughs) Now, this is, of course, just a coping mechanism to deal with modern life where we're in contact with so many people. Now that I'm on Facebook, I have so many more friends than I used to, right? How do I deal with having all of those friends? Well, truth be told, to make it easier, I just sort of categorize. And there are ones who I can just ignore, and there are ones I pay attention to. And we take a special delight in our lives in putting someone in that box we label not trustworthy. It feels good to accomplish something. One less voice to listen to, one more voice to feel morally superior to. It feels good. Now, what is Jesus' response to this accusation that he's not putting the woman in the right box? Well, his response is essentially to say, I know exactly what she's done. 
I know exactly what sort of box you say she belongs in. Trouble is, I don't see those boxes. Right? All I see is what she has done for me and what you haven't. I came in, she gave me perfume and her hair. I didn't know what to do, but you didn't even give me water and a towel. She's been kissing me, kissing my feet ever since I got in. I didn't know what to do, but you didn't greet me. She put perfume on my feet, uh, but you haven't even given me a little oil for my head. These things she's done wrong, which you say puts her in a box labeled not to be trusted. Those things she's done wrong have made her supremely grateful, apparently, to be released from that box. You don't think you've done anything wrong, I guess, because if you did, you'd be a lot more grateful like she is. Jesus doesn't see boxes. He sees people. That's the thing about Jesus, right? He's unwilling to settle for boxes. He recognizes that the people in front of him, just like the people in front of me, are real live people and not simply data to be analyzed, categorized, and either listened to or dismissed. He realizes that the woman, even though she is in the not-to-be-trusted box, is actually the one in the scene who is ready for a deeper relationship with God. Because of the way she responds to him when he shows up. And he also realizes the Pharisee, even though he's in a box that says, trusted, socially elite, is actually not at all ready for a relationship with God. Because his actions betray that he doesn't recognize God when he shows up. He doesn't minimize the things that they've done wrong along the way. He admits the woman has done a lot of stuff wrong. And he admits the Pharisee doesn't have a lot to apologize for. But that doesn't detract from the one and commend the other to Jesus. He sees beyond the boxes and sees each character in the story as a precious, complex being. One of the reasons that I was very, very honored uh, to come on the staff here at the church is that I feel like our church, at its best, gets the reality that faith is relational. That the Christian faith is not simply a series of ideas to be believed, but that those ideas have to take on flesh in the way that I interact with you, in the way that you interact with each other, and the way that we as a body interact with the world. Those are the things that matter when the idea is put on skin, not simply the ideas that we can spout from our minds. Jesus' response, if that's true, if if faith is relational as we believe it is here, I think Jesus' response gives us some clues to how we can improve the quality of those relationships with each other. If the Christian life is all about relationships, this passage is pregnant with ideas for how we can give birth to new life in those relationships in our midst. Three things. I'll keep them short. One, we have no business putting each other in boxes. Boxes are for dead people. Jesus gratefully received gifts from others, right? We, though, spend so much time and energy evaluating whether or not this person is worth listening to. Is he a Democrat? Is he a Republican? Is she pro-life or pro-choice? How does she fit? Does she fit in the traditionalist box or in the feminist box? Because I listen to one of them, but not the other. Is he a member of the NRA? Dead giveaway. What does she think about gay marriage? Dead giveaway. Now, please hear me. I am not saying your beliefs or your feelings about these issues are not important or that we could just sort of sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya because there's no real difference. There are differences. And if you uh, go out for coffee with me sometime, hint, hint, 
I'll talk about those differences and I'll argue with you. I will argue you. I will staple you to the wall. I will present such clear and compelling arguments that you'll end up believing like me or wishing you did. I will argue with you because those issues are very deeply important to me. The way that Christians think politically and theologically, extremely important. I wouldn't have wasted 12 years of my life after high school studying theology if I didn't think it mattered. It matters. But our theology doesn't determine who we are as people. Think of all the times Jesus refused to see people as labels when the rest of the culture was content to see them that way. The rest of the culture was content to see lepers as lepers. Jesus said, no way. They can be healed. They just don't know. The culture saw the Samaritan woman as doubly oppressed, a double outsider, a Samaritan and a woman. And Jesus said, I don't just see Samaritan. I don't just see woman. I see evangelist. Go tell everybody that I'm here. Right. He saw Zacchaeus. He didn't just see tax collector. He didn't just see wicked, unjust. He said, there's a generous giver. He just doesn't see it. I'm going to help him see. If we want to be like Jesus, we can't put people in boxes. We can't see people as just conservative or liberal or traditionalist or feminist or any of those other suffocating boxes. Remember, boxes are for dead people that we put people in. Two, if you want to let someone out of a box, accept a gift from them. It's interesting what Jesus does. You'd think that Jesus, upon seeing the way the Pharisee treated this woman, and upon seeing that she was washing his feet, would bend down and say, there, there, you don't need to wash my feet. You don't need to wash my feet. It's okay. It's okay. I I forgive you. Get up. You're a real person to me. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he accepts gratefully the hospitality that is shown to him. And not only this, you may have wondered why I asked the first few verses of chapter 8 to be tacked on. But we get this picture of after this, he has women who are, again, uh, second-class citizens at that time, going around with him. And not just because they're poor people who just, you know, uh, can't live life on their own, but because they're bankrolling him. They're taking care of him. And Jesus receives their gifts. Jesus doesn't treat people as problems to be solved. Not even me, right? And Lord knows I have problems, right? But Jesus doesn't view me as a problem to be solved, praise God, but as a partner in what he's doing in the world. And that's how he looks at you, despite our problems. And that's what makes us fully human to each other. If I can receive a gift from you, if I can allow you access to my heart and say, you know what, I didn't know this, but I was incomplete before I met you. My life was not as good before I met you as it is now. Thank you then you're really a person to me. Otherwise, you're just a potential ally or a potential obstacle into me getting what I want. And that's not fair to treat each other that way. So if you want to let someone out of a box, accept a gift from them. Number three, we have to presume good faith in each other. We have no business presuming that people who disagree with us are out to destroy us. That's a very convenient fiction we believe at times in our lives because it makes us feel good for believing what we do. If I find you conservative, though, I have no business saying to you, typical conservative, people like that are ruining the Wesleyan church. If they had their way, they'd be running out the Inquisition and setting us back 150 years, right? 
I have no business saying that to you. And if I find you liberal, I don't have any business saying to you, typical liberal, liberals are ruining our church. If they had their way, they'd tax us all 90%. They'd ordain anybody who came along. They'd marry you to your dog if you wanted to, right? Some of you are listening. You caught that, right? When we say that, what are we doing? When we treat each other that way, what are we doing? We're making a caricature of another person so we can feel good about ourselves. We're reducing the humanity of another person, making another person less of a real person, less of that precious, complex being that we've just said Jesus is so insistent they are, reducing their complexity so that we can deal with them and feel better than them. We're making a person a fool instead of a person to feel better about ourselves. And if I read the Sermon on the Mount right, treating someone else as a fool is actually murdering them. Right? Jesus says that's murder to treat someone else as a fool instead of as a person. You kill another person when you act like they're a fool so you can feel better about yourself. So if I act like that, it's not liberals or conservatives ruining the church. It's me. Right? Just a tip. I don't know much about church growth, but running around murdering people, not good for growing the church. Right? Now, please hear me. These issues, again, are to be debated with precision and with passion. I'm not saying they're not important. What I'm saying is it's even more important to treat each other as fully human by not stuffing people in boxes. If we force people into boxes and don't allow them to be human to us, we destroy the relationships that make the church what it is. If we don't have those relationships, you know what we become? Another boring, stuffy, strident political group. The world has enough of these. It doesn't need us to be that. We have to be fully human to each other to be a church. And that means gratefully receiving gifts from each other. Now, truth be told, the media in our culture, the Rush Limbaugh's and the Keith Olbermans, thrive on making us feel threatened. They thrive on making us feel like our way of life is under attack by godless liberals or by backward homophobic bigots. We gravitate towards their messages because they reassure us that the other side is, after all, definitely stupid, probably corrupt, and we, by definition, are neither of those things. And so it's all hands on deck against the stupid, corrupt people. No holds barred because that other side will stop at nothing to destroy us righteous folks and our way of life. And so what happens is even we in the church watch each other. We watch and we listen for words which the other side will say, which will reveal to us whether you, even the very person sitting next to us in the pews is with us or against us. Words like social justice tip us off. Words like gay lifestyle. Words like biblical authority. Words like sustainability. Words like fundamentalists. And even beyond the words themselves, the crinkle in the eye crease, the smirk of the face, they tell us, are they with me or are they against me? We listen carefully for these words so we know if the person sitting next to us is a good guy or a bad guy, one of us or one of them. And that may be a good way to win a culture war, but it's a wretched way to be a church. Dividing up into camps. Pardon me if I get all Baptist on you. I realize that just sort of got, you know, dividing up into camps, brandishing words as weapons each murdering the other by insisting that the other side is fools, that's not the abundant life God calls us to. 
And it's not a church that's capable of extending this Jesus ministry into the world in a meaningful way. If we're going to follow this guy and his ministry is going to be ours, we can't do that to each other. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that change can start today. That it can begin before you leave this place. And it's not hard work. It doesn't demand any special intellectual capabilities. It can happen over food, which I love. It can happen when we invite someone unexpected or different over for a simple meal. Or better, when we say yes to a request from someone else and begin to build a relationship with them. No matter what is on the menu that day, that meal becomes a sacrament. Why? Because the grace of God is released in a new life-giving way. And you're left being a person who gives life instead of murdering. And, and you'll look across that table and you will see someone who you profoundly disagree with in some way. But you will be building a relationship. You will be laying the foundation so that one day, maybe not today, but one day, you can talk about those things that divide you without going all Rush Limbaugh or Keith Olbermann on each other. It doesn't just have to be a meal. It can be a simple kindness, a surprise gift, a note sent just because, a courtesy extended, or just the willingness, frankly, mentally to let someone out of a box in your mind. All these things build relationships. And slowly but surely, when we build relationships in these little ways, we become not just liberals and conservatives, not just Republicans and Democrats, but people, precious, complex, confusing, contradictory, and, and... Yes, not least, beloved. Loved with an everlasting love by a God who, oh yes, invites us into that dance of love by inviting us to love each other. How? How he loves us. And when we do this, we find ourselves less like that Pharisee. Looking at people to find out what kind of person they are. And we find ourselves looking at them like Jesus. Who receives a gift and says humbly and honestly, thank you. Thank you, I'm, I'm not me without you in the same way. By giving and receiving gifts this way, we start laying a foundation so that we all together can be a house for God's spirit. Will you pray with me? Great God, like all preachers, and like every time your word is opened, I call us to something impossible today. Impossible by the standards of this world. And yet, God, we see flickers of it among us. Every now and again, we see what happens uh, when we begin to treat each other as you treated this woman. When we begin to allow others in, allow others to contribute to our lives. God, we pray that you would make that more and more a reality in our midst. We long not to be just another strident, political group with our points of view that we're throwing out in the public square. But, but we want to be people who embody that. We love truth. We love your truth. And we know that we learn from your son that truth comes with skin on, starting with him and going on with us. Make it real among us today. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.